Dear Father, we thank you for this passage in Genesis. We thank you for this covenant that you made with Noah, this covenant that does not end until the end of this world. We thank you for your long-suffering towards us, your provision for this sinful world that you are able to stall the, uh, the progress of evil. We thank you that you have given us the opportunity to participate in that. We pray that we are faithful in doing so. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have access to the throne room of God. We thank you for all these things. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. <clears throat> we are uh, quickly heading towards the end of our series in Genesis. I know we are in chapter 9, and uh, we are only going till chapter 11. Uh, this time around, we'll come back to it in about a year. But we are in the fifth sermon series asking the question, has God forgotten us? And in this whole section, we see that God has absolutely not forgotten about us. He has made provisions for us, for life and godliness, for culture and civility. And so we want to understand his promises towards us. We want to understand his expectations of us and how we live in a harmonious society with sin encroaching on all sides. And so this morning we look at um, a rather controversial section of scripture, uh, the death penalty for murder that he places into the Noahic covenant. And this becomes the institution of human civil government. So we see that that is something that God has created. Government was not a creation of mankind. It was a creation of God, and God has expectations on government as to how it should function. But now we are in the new world after the flood. We remember that Peter talks about three different divisions, that which was before the flood, that which was after the flood, and then the millennial kingdom. He calls these three different worlds, the world that then was, the world that is, and the world that is to come. So this is, for all intents and purposes, a recreation. God is establishing it as if it were a brand new creation, but we will see that there are certain changes. Now that sin is introduced into the experience of mankind, he is going to need to curb that influence of sin. So we will see effects on the animals, we'll see effects on the kingdom of mankind, we will see effects on how God is going to dole out justice uh, in order to keep sin from reigning over the earth as it did before the flood. So our main point this morning up front, so you can think about it as we go through the sermon, God demands that righteousness be upheld and that lawlessness be punished. God installs absolute social structures into the fabric of society in order to promote and protect life. This is the core of government, is to protect life. So we start here with the effect that this had on the animal kingdom. In this new creation, God is going to restore what he once created, but there are changes. 
And this is because sin has not been done away with. We remember that sin will not be fully done away with until after the kingdom, after Jesus Christ has ruled over this world perfectly. But God is restoring the creation in part to Noah, and he is reestablishing him as the new federal head of the human race. So in Genesis 9, 1, we read, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, this is the first time where Noah and his sons have been um, divided from their wives. They are handed a responsibility here. This blessing of uh, being fruitful and multiplying can't happen without their wives. They can't do this alone. Their wives do fall under this, but the man is ultimately going to be responsible for this institution. This blessing is a blessing of both responsibility and ability. God is going to allow man to populate on the earth, but he is also going to require them to do so. Oops. <clears throat> now we remember that this command is coming out of God reasoning amongst himself in the Godhead. Last week we read that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, the sacrifice that Noah made after the flood. And then the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. He is deciding among the Godhead how to deal with mankind, what to do, what his purpose in this new creation is going to be. He did the same thing in the original creation. On day six, when he was about to make man, he conferred amongst his parts, his trinity. And he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. This is his purpose for creation. Man failed in this purpose. He did not rule perfectly on behalf of God. In fact, he allowed himself to be ruled by the creation, submitting their wills to the will of the serpent, another creation of God's, over which they were supposed to have dominion. And so as we look at the new creation with Noah off the ark, we are going to remind ourselves that God has a mediatorial kingdom, an intermediate kingdom inside his universal kingdom. His universal kingdom is never in question in Scripture. It is taken for granted. He is the ruler of all eternity. God's universal kingdom is his eternal rule. It is his throne upon which he always has, does now, and always will rule. But in the creation of this universe, when he spoke into eternity and introduced time, space, and matter, he now creates a mediatorial kingdom. He created man to rule over it, but not to rule over it autonomously, to rule over it in subjection to God and God's will. So man's throne is here that mediatorial kingdom. He rules on God's behalf for the glory of God. And his domain is all of creation over which Jesus, the ultimate God-man, will rule. God, when he created this mediatorial kingdom, handed it to man, but his ultimate purpose was to incarnate 
himself into the man, Jesus Christ, so that that man would rule perfectly over creation. And as scripture unravels, as it rolls out, we see this plan of God becoming more clear, that he, as a man, taking part in his creation, will rule over his creation, and this will bring him the ultimate glory. This is his purpose in creation. And so this rulership is handed to man, and it's passed down through that seed line coming from Adam that will ultimately lead to the Messiah. In Genesis 1.28, when God gave this instruction to man for them to rule over the earth, he blessed them and told them to be fruitful, to multiply, and fill the earth. This is the same command that he gave to Noah and his sons, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. They are under the same prerogative as Adam was. They are to rule on God's behalf, and part of that is spreading out over the earth to fill that kingdom which God has given them. Now, we know that Moses is a very careful author. We know that he doesn't take shortcuts. We'll see when we get to some New Testament books. Uh, here, probably in the late fall, we're going to get to 1 John. And we'll see that John uses a lot of shorthand. Once he's said something, he doesn't say the whole thing again. He will grab a piece to remind you of that truth that he described more completely earlier on in his book. Moses doesn't do that. Moses is very repetitive. He repeats the whole chunk of doctrine because what's missing becomes very evident when you, when you line them up next to each other. So here we have this original command to man on earth before sin. And then we have this new command to Noah in the new creation with the only difference being the introduction of sin has already taken place. And so this command that God gave to Adam is not explicitly stated to Noah to subdue the earth and to rule over it. Now, for all intents and purposes, we still have a dominion mandate. But this is not something that man will be able to completely fulfill. This is something that Jesus Christ, the God-man, will do. But man, influenced by sin, will not be able to tame the earth. And so, God makes a provision for that. Animal kingdom over which man rules will now have the fear of man and the terror of man put into his heart. It says, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea into your hands they are given. So with this then we see a revision in man's rulership. Something has changed, and it's changed because of the effects of sin. But now we have an animal population that is also under the curse because of man. When man was cursed, his entire domain was cursed. So God is adding a protection here for man. Now these two words, fear, this first one is awe, reverence, or respect. This is the kind of fear that we give to God. When we fear God, it says that is the beginning of all knowledge. 
this respectful fear is going to be in the hearts of all animals towards man. But terror is a different kind of word. This is the kind of terror that you might feel when, uh, when startled. This is dread. In fact, it comes from the Hebrew word for tearing in two pieces or to be shattered like a pot. They are deathly afraid of man. This is better explained here in the Lexam analytical lexicon of the Hebrew Bible. Dread here is a fearful expectation or anticipation. It is an emotion experienced in anticipation of some specific pain or danger, usually accompanied by a desire to flee or fight. This is the same word that God uses in Jeremiah when talking about Pharaoh Necho and his armies when they encountered Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army. They were terrified. They were shaking in their boots. They could hardly stand before this army. Now, this is not without exception again. This is the standard. We might uh, see pictures like this from National Geographic and think, well, there's a contradiction here in the Bible because this bear obviously is not afraid of these men. This is an anomaly. This is, uh, we are to have a certain respect for the animal kingdom, but by and large, this fear is placed in the, their hearts where it's not in our hearts. Could be the result of foolishness on the account of man or young boys. It might even be just a little unreasonable. But ultimately, the fear of man is in the hearts of animals and not vice versa. We have a healthy respect for the animal kingdom and what they are capable of. But animals, to an extent, have an irrational fear of man. Animals are far more capable of harming us one-on-one -on -one than we are of harming them. I know I've been told multiple times about spiders. They're more afraid of you than you are of them. And where I don't buy that fully, I have to submit to God's word and say, naturally, that must be true. Still hard to believe. But here, even the, the uh, secular world likes to ask these questions. This is an article published in Life Science in 2021. The headline, humans are practically defenseless. Why don't wild animals attack us more? This is a legitimate question in the scientific world because they don't submit to the doctrines of scripture. They start with no foundation. And so they have, they're only groping as if in the dark to try to understand the world in which we live in. Their first uh, hypothesis that they come up with in this article is that man stands on two legs. And in the animal kingdom, this is, uh, this is a fighting posture. When apes stand on two legs, they're ready to fight. But that introduced another problem because the animals didn't have to see man to be afraid of them. When they would play animal noises in the woods, nothing would happen. But when they played human voices in the woods, the animals fled. In a 2019 study published in the journal Ecology Letters, 
Sirachi and his colleagues played recordings of human voices through remote speakers in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California. The study showed that the sound of humans talking was enough to scare away pumas and several smaller predators, such as bobcats. The recordings were designed to simulate benign conversations and consisted mostly of Sirachi and his friends reciting poetry and passages from books. Not angry screaming, not yelling, not scaring them away with loud noises. The effect was so strong. The recordings had a similar effect to removing predators from an ecosystem altogether. With reduced predator activity allowing small would-be prey animals like mice to forage more than they normally would. Sirachi thinks this fear that predators have of humans could also have an upside. It could help prevent conflict between humans and wildlife. Large predators need a lot of space and in a human-dominated world, they need to be able to live alongside humans without conflict. Now, I think he's onto something here. If you put it into a biblical framework, it would become much more apparent that man now entering into this world that's a little more wild than the world which God originally created. Man being outnumbered by animals with sin and the curse now reigning. Man is going to need some level of protection. In order to fulfill this mandate to go out and fill the earth and populate it, they're going to need to be protected from the much more physically dangerous animals. We might be mentally more capable of them, but I would not want to come up against any one of these larger predators. I would lose, and so would you. But this is a question that kind of rings in the hearts and minds of man throughout all time, especially those which are not that biblically founded. Now, Rudyard Kipling had a biblical understanding, but not necessarily a biblical worldview. And his entire book, The Jungle Book, was surrounded with this concept of animals being afraid of man. And he comes up with this idea that they're afraid of man because of fire, because of their experience, their instincts has taught them that man has the ability of fire and animal does not, so then be afraid of man. This is not the biblical answer. God has put the fear of man, or the, yeah, the fear of man into the hearts of animals. We call this anthropophobia. Anthropo from man in Greek, and phobia is a word you should be familiar with, fear. This is the fear of man in the hearts of animals. It is observable in every corner of the earth. In animal habitats that have never experienced man, when man is introduced, they run and flee. This is a divine mandate that God has put into the social structure of the animal kingdom. They fear man. And so this command to subdue and rule the earth is not explicitly stated, but it is provided by God. They are going to be able to live in this world, which they can't on their own tame because God is taming it for them. He is providing them a level of security in this wild world. And the dominion mandate that they were given is not here removed. In fact, we see that into the hands of man, all of these animals were given. Just because he doesn't say it in the same way doesn't mean he is not saying it. In fact, here he is more descriptive. 
in saying how this is to be than he was to Adam. He is being more clear here. Now, some people look at this and say that Adam, or that uh, Moses rather, is missing a category of animals. Remember, he's listed out the animals quite a few times, and occasionally he includes the line item cattle. So they say that beasts, birds, creeping things, and fish, these are wild animals, and then domesticated animals are not under this, um, uh, under this uh, effect by God. Now, I don't buy this because the qualification of all these categories of animals is that they are given into the hands of man. This includes domesticated animals. Beasts occasionally is used for that larger, broader category of wild animals and domesticated animals, and I think that's a better interpretation of this verse. But then what is that dominion mandate? That dominion mandate that was given to Adam and is now reinstalled to Noah to have dominion over the earth to rule it on God's behalf. But this begs the New Testament question, wait, isn't Satan the ruler of this world? John 12, 30, Jesus calls him such. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, if man is supposed to rule over this earth under the dominion mandate, how is it that this earth has another ruler? Well, Satan does not rule in the same capacity as man is supposed to rule this earth. Satan did not usurp and so take the kingdom that God gave to mankind, but he usurped a specific role or a specific function that made man incapable of exercising fully the rule that God gave him over the earth. But when we go to Revelation chapters 5 especially, we see that the title deed to this earth does not rest with Satan, but it rests securely in the hand of God, awaiting the perfect ruler of this earth, Adam, or the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus. Adam did not receive this scroll from God. Adam did not receive the title deed. It has always remained with God. God gave him the responsibilities so that he could hand this title deed to the one who is worthy to open it, and that is Jesus and only Jesus. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And the rest of Revelation, we see that as this book is opened up, as these seals are broken and as judgments come on the earth, Satan's grip over the hearts of mankind is loosened. Satan's rule is minimized over this mediatorial kingdom, but especially that kingdom of man. So this title deed to the earth is right now in the right hand of God, awaiting Jesus Christ to come and take this scroll, open it up, and so receive the kingdoms of the earth from God. And so when God commands Noah to rule over this earth, to exercise the dominion mandate, 
This is not something he is incapable of doing, but it is something that will require obedience to God, that which Adam failed to do. Elliot Johnson, a theologian from Dallas Seminary, summarizes this whole concept pretty well. He says, God's universal reign remained unchallenged. This is referring to the fall. Yet the permission of evil in the realm of the earth resulted in the mediatorial reign of man being lost. This realm, including mankind, was now ruled by the serpent. Man's delegated right to rule on earth as stewards was lost to the serpent. The serpent now ruled Adam and the woman in their disobedience. As the enemy, the serpent spoke as though he were God. So the serpent had usurped God's right to the claim and allegiance of mankind. Now the serpent exercised rule over man and the woman in their disobedience. Now I agree in large part with Elliot Johnson, but I think his statement about Satan's rule over this world outside of mankind is a little heavy-handed. I think it's a bit more nuanced. Satan exercises rule over mankind as mankind exercises rule over this earth. Because man, in their disobedience, willingly submits to Satan. Rather than submitting to God, and so ruling on God's behalf, they delegate authority to Satan. He has not rightfully taken the rule of this earth. He has usurped God's position over man. And so man must turn to God for salvation, trusting in him and him alone to save them from their sins, but also as they exercise authority, seeking his will over the creation. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, we see that his influence is directly over the hearts of man. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. When man is disobedient to God, when they are not saved, when they are outside of this family of God, they are under the direct influence of Satan. In fact, they are part of his kingdom turning to Christ for salvation transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. But even once one is saved from this kingdom of Satan, disobedience still has its effect. We are no longer required by our own nature to serve Satan, but we are instead going against our nature when we are Christians and we choose to serve Satan's will instead of God's. And Paul talks about this as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, he is speaking about saved believers, the Lord's bondservant, who is being disobedient. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses, 
These are the bondservants of the Lord, the saved believers, coming to their senses, confessing, repenting. They will escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. A believer who is living in carnality, and carnality is not necessarily lascivious living, but it is simply trusting something other than God and God's spirit. When we put our trust somewhere else as Christians, we begin to serve the will of Satan rather than the will of God. And this is Satan exercising his dominion over man when man is willingly disobedient or when man is disobedient to God because of his sin nature. 1 John 5.19 tells us, We know that we are of God. We saved believers. We are of God. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, even in Noah's day. And this is why certain provisions are given to Adam or given to Noah in this Noahic covenant in order to quell the effects of sin. This makes me hungry, so we'll pass this one. Carnivory proviso. There is now carnivory introduced into the human experience. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you. This is a far-reaching statement. There is no distinction here between clean and unclean animals. That will not occur until the Mosaic Law, and it will be for that specific people group in order to set them apart among the nations. But here, all living things that move on the earth, he is giving to them for food. No longer is their diet restricted to green plants, but it is extended to living creatures as well. This is essentially the Noahic covenant equivalent to the Edenic covenant covenant, uh, provisions for food. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, it says, The Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. That was to guard it. They did not guard it. They allowed the serpent to come in and influence and subvert But the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. This was, again, a far-reaching provision. There was not one exception save for the exception spelled out explicitly by God. Eve added more restrictions to this, but that was not what God had intended. God simply said, that from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That was the one and only exception. And so in verse 4 of Genesis 9, we get our one and only exception to this provision of all animal life as food. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, bear in mind that this Noahic covenant has not been rescinded. This is still a covenant that is binding on us today. We are not to eat flesh with its blood. 
but the blood should be drained from the flesh before we eat it. Now this has many New Testament connections as well, but for Noah, he could see immediately two connections. And these two connections we do follow through and we see them today, but we see them more amplified. First, it was by means of the blood that this covenant was sealed between him and God. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He spilled the blood of these animals. He burnt them on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and it gave rest to his wrath. Noah, living in a culture which understood that they must approach God on the basis of a blood sacrifice, understood what that blood sacrifice represented, that it represented life. For us, this is written more explicitly to us in the Mosaic Law. Remember, both Genesis and the book of Leviticus were given to the same people group at around the same time, the Exodus generation of Israel. And so they could easily draw a line between Leviticus 17 verses 11 through 14 and the provision in the Noahic covenant uh, not to eat the blood because it is the life of the animal. And so what does this mean? God is explaining a general principle here, not one that is unique to the Mosaic law. He says the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood is that symbol of life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among you in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. This is a sanctity of life issue, a symbolic respect of life, but also the understanding that life and covenant is intimately intertwined. Hebrews will say that the covenant cannot be uh, in effect while the covenant maker is still alive. This idea looks forward to Jesus Christ needing to dye his own blood, ratifying the new covenant. His own blood ratifying every covenant throughout all of history. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Noah is receiving a covenant from God, which is going to orchestrate life and how he lives in the economy of God. And the number one purpose of that covenant is going to be the protection of life. And so respect for life is going to be necessary. In Hebrews 9.12, we see that this does look forward to that perfect sacrifice of Christ. It says, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, that is Jesus Christ, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
Later in this chapter, we'll see that priests sacrifice and they don't receive an eternal redemption, but they receive a temporary atonement. In Hebrews 10, it says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They can cover them so that God looks over them and looks to his son, but they will never take them away. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ takes sin away. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And from that point forward, he rules for all eternity. And so we come to our last few verses in that most controversial part, possibly in all of Genesis, because this is something that our own government and our own society tends to rage against. But this is a biblical principle, the establishment of capital punishment. And we will see, first of all, that it is a divine prerogative. It is commanded. It is not something that is given as an option to governments. It is the very foundation of a government. Genesis 9.5 says, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Where God had exercised solely this divine prerogative to put to death the disobedient, we saw that when he sentenced Adam to death. We saw that when he had mercy on Cain, he has the ability to have mercy on whom he will have mercy, but the sentence of Cain's actions was death. He now imparts that divine prerogative to man. Man is to exercise this prerogative responsibly and fully. And this is tied linguistically back to the account of Cain and Abel. Moses, being the careful author that he is, makes reference to every man's brother, the lifeblood being required from him. So we look back at Genesis 4.8 and see what happened. This was really the beginning of the end for the world that once was. This was the first instance of a sin nature taking effect on mankind. Adam sinned and became a sinful creature, but Cain was born a sinful creature, the same state in which Noah and his sons now enter into this new world. So Cain told, his, or told Abel his brother, that which God had told him, the warning that God had told him. It came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? The Noahic covenant is establishing the truth that we are our brother's keeper. But if you remember, I think I made this comment when we went through, this is the densest use of this word brother anywhere in scripture. It is used more times in the fewest number of verses than anywhere else. The issue on God's mind was, that Cain and Abel were brothers, and yet this violence arose among even such who were so close together. 
He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When we get into Revelation chapter 16, we see that these final judgments that come on the whole earth, these, this uh, globe-stopping judgments, the final bold judgments that essentially end the Noahic covenant, has to do with the blood that has been spilled. God gives them blood to drink, turning the oceans to blood, turning the rivers and the springs to blood, killing all sea life, something that wasn't even done in the Noahic flood. And this all has to do with the blood that the earth, the disobedient on the earth, have shed. This is a huge deal in God's book. Taking the life of another person is not permitted by any means, taking that innocent life, because whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now some might try to argue against this biblical principle and say, well, if God says you cannot take a man's life, then we can't obey his command to take a man's life for taking a man's life. It starts to get pretty hairy, but essentially the clear meaning of what God has written here is clear. People can find all ways they want to try to say that's not what God means, that's not what he says, or we can't obey it because it's contradictory. But if we understand the situation that God has given here, that a man takes the life of an innocent man in murder, in homicide, this is far different from the judicial exercise of capital punishment. And that then raises the question then, how do you dole out judicial capital punishment? Well, you need a government. This is sort of a modified merism where you get uh, one extent from another. Capital punishment is the greatest possible punishment on this earth. And if that is handed to man, then regulation of that which is under it also is necessarily added to it. If man is able to exercise the greatest punishment on another man for his sin and wrongdoing, for his evil, then you need a government to support that. You need a judicial system, but you need a judicial system founded upon this basis. Law and order, God's will, and most of all the sanctity of life. Capital punishment preserves life. And this is not counterintuitive. Jonathan Sarfati about this says, when it comes to the Noahic command, the object was to punish a murderer. And of course, in so doing, it would prevent this murderer from murdering again. A murderer takes the life of an innocent man. And this murderer might act again. Now, this could act as a deterrence. Someone could see that a murderer receives a death penalty and then choose himself not to become a murderer. But this is not ultimately the goal of capital punishment. Capital punishment is to deal justice, to prevent one who has demonstrated that he is capable of murder from murdering again. 
The idea is similar to the fear and terror placed into the hearts of animals to prevent them from taking the life of man. This fear of one another is not in the hearts of man. And so it is artificially placed there by the institution of capital punishment. So deterrence is here not mentioned. Neither is rehabilitation. When dealing with a divine command, especially in such serious matters, it is important not to let emotion cloud the clear teaching of the Bible in either direction. Capital punishment is a touchy subject. It is something that I believe, as it stands in our own country, is not in effect. I think it was for a time a few years ago, and it is currently not. You cannot have a law and order society without it. God has instituted it as the very foundation. If you cannot exercise the greatest control, you cannot exercise control. A government is there to protect, and it is there primarily to protect life. Paul recognizes this in Romans 13. He says, it is a minister of God, speaking of governments. It is an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. This is the natural function of government. This is the purpose of government. And it is necessary in a fallen world. Acts 25 says, and this is uh, Paul defending his own innocence, but he is defending his own innocence within the structure of justice. And look what he says. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. He ought to have a fair and just trial here. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. He understands the heavy hand that God has given to governments, and he is not going to go against God's will for this structure. No government of man is not the ideal, but it is a necessary evil at times. It is something that we are better with than we are better without. The alternative is anarchy. Each man doing in his own eyes what he sees right. Interestingly enough, it is this very institution that God introduces to the social fabric of mankind that ends up being the death of Christ. In Luke 23, we see Pilate interacting with the Jews who are bloodthirsty for Jesus. They want him dead, despite any wrongdoing. In fact, the Sadducees and the high priest have gone back and forth trying to find something worthy of death under the law. Now, Israel, in this year, uh, 30 AD, had about three to six months prior to the execution of Jesus, lost their right under Roman rule to execute. They lost this right to exercise the divine authority of capital punishment. Rome took its authority over Israel. They had to go to Rome in order to crucify Jesus. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to 
rebellion. This was their claim. This was what they said was worthy of death. Behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. In other words, Jesus is innocent. Pilate has given him a trial and has found nothing worthy of death. Herod as well. He sent him back to Pilate because he found nothing deserving of death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. This is not a just society. But the people want him dead. Pilate is going to at least punish him before sending him out in hopes that this will quench their bloodthirst. It does not. Pilate wanting to release Jesus. He does want to do what government is there to do and exercise justice. He addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify him. And he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. Pilate tries yet again. But the society in which Jesus is living is not operating under the divine prerogative of responsible exercising of capital punishment. They are using it as their own tool, not seeking the will of God, but seeking the will of man. Now they end up serving the will of God in doing this. This is something amazing about God's sovereignty and omnipotence and uh, sovereignty primarily, where he is able to use the wills of man to affect his own will. But here we see that the people of Israel were insistent and with loud voices they were asking that Jesus be crucified. Their voices began to prevail and Pilate pronounced and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demands be granted. By the will of the people interfering with the justice system in Rome, Jesus was inappropriately crucified. But yet when he is hanging on the cross, when he is undergoing this unjust punishment, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuses at him saying, Are you not Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence and condemnation? This thief or murderer on the cross was under the same condemnation as Jesus. They are all receiving the death penalty. But the one says, we indeed are suffering justly. This is the proper exercise of the law. We did wrong. The government is exercising its authority over us. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And so civil government, with the necessary prerogative of dealing out capital punishment for wrongdoing, becomes the fourth divine institution in God's program of human operation. The first was labor. This was to promote life on earth, to promote the proper exercise of God's intention of life on earth, to rule to subdue on God's behalf. The second was marriage. He created 
Adam and Eve, and he put them together in the garden, and they were supposed to propagate life. We learn when we get to Ephesians that God had more in mind when he instituted marriage, that it was to resemble the union between the church and Jesus Christ. But here we see that it ultimately serves his purpose of producing life. And he institutes the divine institution of family. This becomes the core social structure that God has intended, the family structure. The individual is not taken into account in this case, but it is the family operating together. They are supposed to function as one unit and so have a healthy and thriving society. And that, why, that is why it was such an issue for God that Cain slew his own brother because this broke down the family structure. This broke down the family unit. This went against the purpose of marriage to produce life by taking life. And it went against labor as well because Cain was not doing what he was supposed to be doing on behalf of the Lord. In fact, he was seeking his own rather than seeking the Lord's. He was not working unto the Lord, but working unto himself. And so after the fall, after the flood, after God has taken care of the evil that was there before the destruction of the flood, but he has not yet gotten rid of sin and evil in the earth, because if you remember, he even said, this is still part of man. When he said he is not going to destroy man again, he also told us that the thoughts and intentions of man are evil from his youth. God understands this, and so he gives us a fourth divine institution, and rather than promoting life, this one preserves life. This divine institution is a divine prerogative, one that must be exercised in order to protect. Government's job is not to take innocent life or to permit innocent life to be taken without consequence. It is to exercise God's justice by God's rule over this earth given to man for man to act responsibly with it. And with this new divine institution, we have a new arrangement in the social fabric of humanity, a new economy of God. And so we move from this dispensation of conscience, by which man was supposed to do all known good and avoid all known evil, to the dispensation of human government, where a government structure focused around the family and the married couple to promote life is instituted. This is a protection, again, a necessity, but it is a necessity that can be abused. Just as labor is abused, just as marriage is abused, just as family is abused, government is rife for abuse. But remember that in each dispensation, there are multiple different facets by which God tests man. He tests man not to see what is the character of man, but to show man what is the character of man. The major event that sets off this dispensation is the flood. We saw with the first dispensation that the major event was creation itself. God 
organized his household after creation. He told man what he expected of him. After the fall came another dispensation, the dispensation of conscience, where God told him what was expected of them and how they are to live in a world that is now under the curse. And here in the dispensation of human government, after the flood, God tells man what his expectation is. It is to protect life specifically by punishing murder. That which takes life is supposed to come under judgment. There is also a human test. And this leads into, in each case, the next dispensation, the next test, or rather the uh, next divine grace. This human test was to populate the earth. We see in verse 7, it almost repeats verse 1 of chapter 9. This is an inclusio where we see that it is packaged neatly with two bookends. Go and be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But here, instead of fill the earth, once again, Noah, Moses gives us more information. He says to populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. This populate abundantly is the same word used in the original creation for the swarming of the birds and of the fish. We are supposed to go out and be as prolific on this earth as the birds and the fish. We are not supposed to exercise population control. This is the unjust use of capital punishment. God created this earth for man to live on it, for man to spread out over it. God knew what he was doing when he created it. He knew the size he was giving it. He knew the resources he was giving it. He knows the ingenuity of mankind, especially obedient mankind, so that he has made all provision for man to exercise faithfulness to God's command. Go and fill the earth. But then we see that the human failure comes, not necessarily in not populating, but in not filling the earth. They do not spread. But this institution of human government becomes almost instantaneously corrupted by man. We saw with the account of the fall that it does not take long for all mankind to become totally corrupt. And so we see that all government, almost immediately, within 100 years of the flood, becomes almost entirely corrupt. Rather than spreading out and having governments situated around the earth, we have a global government in the Shinar Valley with Babylon. With Nimrod, its king, exercising authority unjustly, usurping the power of God, and not promoting those divine ideals which God has placed in the Noahic covenant. And so the divine judgment is dispersion. God is going to disperse the people of Babylon. He is going to end that global government and uh, you will have to wait a few weeks to see exactly the result of that, though you can read ahead if you'd like. I would even encourage it. But God is going to once again step in with his grace and provide a special protection. He is going to provide a unique nation, a nation which will be ruled directly by him, not a human government, but a theocracy. 
And he is going to carve out this people on earth in order to protect life, specifically the seed line, the line that would lead to the Messiah, who would become the salvation of the whole world. And so our takeaway this morning, God commands that righteousness be upheld and that lawlessness be punished. God installs absolute social structures into the fabric of society in order to promote life and to protect life. And we forgo them at our own detriment. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have seen fit to organize our social structures, that you have not left us to our own devices, but that you have given us divine wisdom that sometimes contradicts our human logic. But we accept these graciously, willingly, knowing that you seek our good. And as we are taught by the Spirit, we come to understand these spiritual things. And we thank you so much for this amazing gift of government. We pray that we can exercise this faithfully. We pray that we become good stewards of this earth and that we not corrupt the earth by our governments, but instead protect life as you have instituted them to do. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.